everyone. Thanks for checking out the Citizens Podcast. We are the high school student ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. in the student wing. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love it if you posted it on your Instagram story and tag at NBC Citizens. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy. All right, you may be seated. <clears throat> Thank you again. Uh, uh, Love those song selections. I think they tie in perfectly with what we'll be talking today. So, again, it wasn't planned, but awesome how God works sometimes. So, again, um, if you've not been with us, uh, and for the most part, most of you, half of you at least, probably haven't been, uh, we've been studying the book of Acts. And so as a high school, um, uh, we've been looking through this book of the Bible. This is found in the New Testament. This follows the uh, Gospel of Luke. And so the author, this physician, Luke, uh, companion of Paul's, he writes the book of Luke, but then continues on into the book of Acts, basically, which gives us a picture of what happened after um, the book of Luke. It's one long narrative, if you could look at it that way. Uh, but this book is all about gospel multiplication. And we've talked about a lot of different things. Thus far, we've looked at several different chapters, as you can see. Um, today, we're going to be looking at chapter 16. So you can see we've made some progress already. But up until this point, we've uh, hit on a few different things, but nonetheless, the biggest thing that we talked about and the, and the primary reason for everything is rooted in uh, the verse, uh, well, verse 8 of chapter 1, which is the key theme verse for this book here, and it's that we would be witnesses of Jesus, and we would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so in Jerusalem, um, or they would be better yet, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and the rest of the world, and how that all also applies to us today. Uh, that promise that Jesus made before he left that they would receive the Holy Spirit is true, and we know that it's true because we're talking about Scripture today. Right? When he says, you're going to go into the rest of the world and preach the gospel, we know that actually happened because now today we're in Ohio, we're in Akron, we're talking about it when it originally started in Jerusalem. And so, again, it's arrived here today, and it's continued to spread. Right? The gospel continues to multiply. It doesn't stop, and it hasn't stopped yet. And our mission, our responsibility as believers, the same mission they had was to continue that, to be witnesses for Jesus, uh, not just in our own Jerusalem in that context, right, our own local cities or schools and, and towns, but in the surrounding cities, in the surrounding communities, and also the rest of the world, whether it's going ourselves, sending and supporting and praying, whatever it may be, that is our responsibility as followers of Jesus. Each and every one of us has that responsibility. It's not a suggestion, it's something that we are called to do. So again, in light of this, we've been teaching through or speaking through and learning through the book of Acts. And last week we looked specifically at chapter 15, where we were talking about the gospel multiplying. We talked about a lot of different things. We kind of took a step back uh, because of what was happening there in that chapter and just clarified what the gospel really was. Uh, at that point, right, the gospel had advanced, and I'll try to fill you in as, as quickly as I possibly can, but uh, the church in Jerusalem was growing, and I'll talk about this a little bit further down the road here, but it was growing, and at some point it had to spread because of persecution, and it went into these different places. And now 
The base for the church was in Antioch, which is modern-day Turkey. Um, and this was a church that was primarily filled with these Gentile believers, meaning they were not Jewish people. And so what happens is these people from Judea, these people from um, uh, Jerusalem, right? these Jewish believers, they would come or they did come to Antioch and they started to teach this different gospel. These Judaizers, they came and they told these non-Jewish believers that if you wanted to be saved, you could only be saved if you submitted to Jewish rituals. And these rituals, they, they involve right, physical circumcision, but also dietary laws with purity as well. They, they said if essentially you want to be a believer, being saved by Jesus and believing in what he has done is part of it. But also the other side is you have to submit to these customs. They're not just talking about these moral laws that we see in the Ten Commandments, right? We know we're supposed to obey that, but they said that you had to practice these rituals, to do them in order to be made right with God. That belief, you know, involved Christ. Christ was part of it, but they also added to the fact that you are saved by grace through faith. And this is obviously something that is important to address, right? This is... Um, not true. This is contrary to what we see in the Bible is what we know and believe in today. And so this was of the utmost importance for them to get together and address. They had to clarify this was not true. And so what happens is, is the apostles and the elders, they get together in what is called the Jerusalem Council. And the reason this was, again, so urgent for them to discuss was because as believers... We can disagree. We can disagree on a lot of things. And we have disagreed. If you look at the church history, if you look at time itself, and you look at believers throughout time, they have time and time again disagreed with themselves or amongst themselves with each other. And even today, if you look at different congregations, you look at different denominations, everybody tends to believe different things sometimes when it comes to these uh, theological issues that are on the periphery, that are on the outside. But it's so important that they address this because this is an issue that has nothing to do with the outside. Because although there is room for us to debate when it comes to theological beliefs that are not central to our faith, this was at the core of what we believe. They weren't discussing whether or not they believe this is true or this is true or this opinion. Um, and we talked about last week, right? We talked about how we all have our own convictions, right? Some people won't drink. Some people will. Some people won't get tattoos. And some people will. And there's room for debate there. And you can land in different places. And that's okay. Everybody has their freedoms. And everybody's entitled to their own convictions based on these things on the outside that are not central to the gospel itself. But... The problem is this was in regards to the gospel. When it comes to the gospel, guys, uh, there is no room for contention. When it comes to the gospel of Jesus, you cannot disagree. You cannot believe this or that. There is one gospel of Jesus, and that's it. And so when they heard about this, they heard about what was going on, they had to get together. They had to address it because the gospel, as we talked about last week, is the foundation for 
our faith. It's from what everything that we believe in is built upon. If we don't understand the gospel, if we don't have the gospel right, if you think it's Jesus and something else, then everything else falls apart. And so we have to understand what the gospel is very clearly because it is what everything is built upon. There's a quote from Matt Chandler that I used last week, and I'll use it again. Everything is not about the gospel, but everything should lead to it. Everything that we teach here, everything that Pastor Jacob will teach, everything you'll hear on Sunday morning, it's not just th- John 3.16 every Sunday. You don't just come in and you hear John 3.16. Oh, open up your Bibles, John 3.16. All right, guys, everybody together. For God so loved the world. It's not just that. But the gospel is in everything that we talk about. It might sound different, it might look different, but it's at the root of everything that we teach upon. Everything that we teach on stems from the gospel. It's in light of the gospel. And so it's primarily uh, um, the, the central focus of everything that we do. It is significant. It is valuable. It is necessary for us to understand what it is. Means And that's why, again, it was so incredibly important for these people to get together and address these uh, misunderstandings, to address some of this confusion at this council, and why it was so important that they got to the bottom line, right, in answering this question. Is it true that you need to add anything to what Jesus has done? And Peter, here in this chapter, chapter 15, him and James, they make it very clear the answer is no. You don't add anything onto it. They give two kind of different arguments for it. Peter, he gives the argument, no, we don't have to add anything on to it because of how Jesus has already been working. He uses the example of the uh, first recorded uh, Italian believer, right, Cornelius. He says, I was with Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He's not a Jewish man, but I saw him be saved. Holy Spirit is in Cornelius, and he has gone out, and, 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 his whole, and his family has come to know. And I've seen so many Gentiles come to know Jesus, and they're sharing the gospel with others, and more and more are coming to know Jesus. So there's no way that you need to become this ritualistic Jew, because God's already been working this way. You can't just change it. I used the illustration last week. He's not like a sport where whenever a technological advancement comes out, they're like, oh, wait, well, let's incorporate this now and let's add this into the gospel. That's not how it works with the gospel of Jesus. And then when you look at James's argument, he says this. He says, no, you don't add anything to what Jesus has done because that's what the Bible says. The Bible says this from the beginning of time, since day one, the Bible has been very clear. The only way to be made right with God is through Jesus. And again, if you want to win any biblical argument, just use the Bible. That's what he does. Makes it very clear again. The gospel does not change. It cannot change The means for salvation don't need to be adapted. They don't need to be reinterpreted. They don't need to be altered. And as a matter of fact, they can't be. The only way to come to Christ, to be made right with Christ, to be forgiven of your sins is through Jesus Christ. All that he has done and not what you have done. And again, they came together and they clarified that gospel. They made it very clear to everybody. And when they reheard this good news of Jesus Christ, when they were introduced again to the gospel, they celebrated. Anybody here, anybody here have a story they've heard about a million times in their life? Raise your hand, right? (laughs) 
Listen, I don't know if he likes talking about it. I don't even know if he likes doing it. But I love when Pastor Jacob um, talks about him playing football when he was in high school. I always throw him on the spot. I throw him under the bus. I will admit that. But um, I love to put him on the spot and be like, yo, what about when you were a kicker in high school? Um, yo, show them your kick. Show them your kick. So next time you see Pastor Jacob, if you haven't heard that story, if you've not seen his kick yet, make sure you ask him, hey, were you a state champion in high school? And were you a kicker? Can I see your kick? Just ask him that. And he'll, he'll love it. He'll eat it up. I love when he tells that story. And I love when he does it. He gets in his stance. He does his whole arm shake thing. You'll see what I'm talking about. Um, but I love hearing it. Now, I don't know if you have a story like that, but there's also a flip side to that, right? There are stories we've heard about a million times. And every time we start to hear it, we're like, oh, no, here we go again. Uh, usually our parents do that. Um, you know, your dad might have a story where he tells it the same, the same way about a million times. Every family gathering, you know, he talks about the time he got asked for his ID by a waitress at the Red Lobster or something. I don't know. He might, he might talk about that or he might have another story. Um, and every time you hear it, you're like, oh, here we go again. Oh, my goodness, Dad, please just shut up. You're embarrassing me. Oh, my goodness. And we kind of just roll our eyes. We kind of... I don't really care for it. But if we're, if we're honest, sometimes like these stories that we keep hearing over and over again, it starts off fun, right? We are there. We actually see it in person. It's hilarious. And then after some time, we're like, all right, we get it. We get it. You look young. Great for you. Awesome. You know, whatever it is. But after some point, you might even grow kind of annoyed by it. You've heard it so many times. You're like, oh, my goodness, this person Oh, wow, he always talks about this. Get over yourself, or get over this, or can you please just stop? It's annoying. It's redundant. I've already heard this a million times. Guys, I pray that that is never the case for you and I when it comes to hearing the gospel of Jesus. Again, everything that we talk about here is rooted in Scripture. And I'm going to talk about the gospel a lot. And if you haven't noticed, I do talk about it a lot. Because we have to hear it. Because we have to be reminded of it. What I don't want is for you to hear the gospel and grow numb to it. Every time you hear somebody talking about how Jesus died for his sin, you're like, oh, here we go again. I've already heard this. And the more you hear it, the more you kind of despise it. That's, that should be concerning for us if that's the place we're in. I would love for our response to be like these people here in this church that when they heard the gospel again, they celebrated. I pray that your response is the same, that every time you hear the good news of Jesus, that you celebrate, that you praise God for what he has done for you and for me. We need the gospel. You'll never outgrow the gospel. And from the moment you become a Christian to the last moment you have here on earth, you have to be reminded of what he has done for you and I. Because the gospel is the foundation of everything that we believe in. Everything is built from it. That's the crux of what we talked about. And it dives into what we're talking about today so perfectly. Because the gospel is central to our lives and, and everything we believe. But the gospel also, it changes us. The gospel itself changes us. It makes us new, as we talked about. It changes you and I. Uh, the Biblical Museum, the second volume of it, uh, by James Gray, it says this. He, he, he writes this about these um, converts from the island of Madagascar. 
He talks about how they would present themselves in, in flocks and troves, and, and a great number of them would come and, and ask to be baptized. And these people from this island would often be asked, what first led you to think of becoming a Christian? What first grabbed your attention? Why do you want to be a believer? And in most cases, a lot of the times what they would say, their response would be the changed conduct of others who became Christians. They would give testimonies like, I knew this man to be a thief. I knew this man to be a drunkard. That man, he used to be an angry man. He used to hate others. He was cruel to his family. He was unkind to them. And now they are all changed. This thief is an honest man. This drunkard is sober. That angry man he loves. The one who is bitter is joyful. The one who treats his family poorly, right, is unkind. He is gentle and kind in his home. They said this, there must be something in a religion that can work such changes. It's the gospel of Jesus. And during these last couple of weeks, what we've done is we've seen how the gospel has changed a resounding amount of people. The gospel has multiplied. People are coming to know Jesus in thousands. The church is also multiplying. There's more and more churches being planted. For the most part, we've been talking about through this narrative of the book of Acts, we've taken a macro view. We've looked at it from this broad perspective, looked at these historical events, but um, you know, tracing back to the day of Pentecost, which was kind of in the beginning of the book of Acts, when when the, the, the followers of Jesus, the small number of them, only a few hundred, they, they received the Holy Spirit. And on that day, people were amazed by what was happening. And the first Christian sermon was preached by Peter, and uh, about 3,000 of them accepted the gospel that day. Following that, those events, there was 5,000 people who came to know Jesus at Solomon's um, portico, right? After Peter and uh, John, they healed this lame man at the gates of the temple. People knew this man for over 40 years, and all of a sudden, this guy who had never walked before in his life, he was now finally walking. What's going on? And they hear this message that Peter has for them, and 5,000 of them are saved. Now, that's 8,000 people already that have now become believers. They have been convicted by their sin, repented, and turned to Christ. And that doesn't stop there. The gospel continues to go into several different cities. And now it's even crossed, um, uh, you know, different kind of districts and territories. It's gone into different cultures and um, backgrounds, uh, ethnicities, right? Ethnic boundaries, it's crossed, right? We talked about an Italian coming to know Jesus. We talked about these Gentiles, right? Now all of these people all of a sudden are coming to know Jesus, even despite of this great oppressor that is trying to prevent this from happening. The Roman Empire, right? We all know history. We've heard about the Romans. We all know that this was a very powerful group of people. They did everything they could to prevent the advancement of the gospel, but the harder that they tried, the more the gospel grew. And it's funny because we know that as time kind of plays itself out, over half of the Romans actually would eventually proclaim, uh, proclaim excuse me, Christ 
is Lord. This morning, what I want to do is do something a little bit different and take a micro-level approach and rather than look at certain events in time, right, look at this narrative, spend some time as opposed to looking to these cities and empires, um, but looking at certain individuals, uh, giving us a tangible kind of approach this morning, um, something that is at arm's length, in other words, something that is relatable to each and every one of you, perhaps in a different way. Uh, we looked at how God was changing people on a large scale, but this morning I want to zero in on a few different individuals today. And so as we read, I want you to perhaps insert yourself in these people's shoes to think about these circumstances, think about these situations. I don't want you to create applications that aren't there. That's not what I'm asking you to do. But my hope is that we can learn more about who God is through these different testimonies and also in turn then learn more about us, what's true about us. Thus far, this narrative at some times, if we're being honest, may seem not very applicable, right? A lot of this stuff, as I mentioned at the beginning of our series, is descriptive. It's kind of just going over what happened, right? There's not really a straightforward application for us. It's not as prescriptive as some different passages you would read in the Bible. But we have done our best to kind of try to pluck or extract different valuable insights and necessary insights from each passage. And today, hopefully, that will be a little bit easier for us to do. Because I want to take a few different um, moments to look at a few different individuals and how they came to know God seeing how the gospel changed them, and in doing so, hopefully we learn more about God and, again, ourselves. So if you have your Bibles, please flip over to chapter 16 of the book of Acts. We're going to jump down to verse 13 and going to spend a few um, minutes here kind of looking over some of uh, these different verses and addressing three different individuals here. The first one we're going to be looking at is a woman named Lydia. Now, for context, before we get into verse 13, I want you to know that they're in Philippi, which is a leading city here in the district of Macedonia. Um, it's a Roman colony, uh, colony, and it's very reputable. It's a, it, it's a, a highly influential city, and so... Again, this is where this story and, and what we pick up on in the book of Acts is taking place. Verse 13 says, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we were supposed, uh, where, we, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia in the city, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after, she was baptized, in her household as well. She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she, and she prevailed upon us. Now, a few things that we know about her or can surmise from what we see here is that she was a religious woman. Right? We see that she's kind of a part of this Bible group here, this prayer group that's meeting. Um, she's moral. Um, she has morals, right? She's a good person, per se, a worshiper of God. And it seems as though she's done pretty well for herself. 
right? She's um, a seller of purple goods. She's in, as you would say, kind of the fashion industry nowadays. She's a fashion guru uh, for some people, if you want to kind of put it in today's context. Um, but it says here, what's also interesting, and you can tell that she's got some bread, is the fact that they're in Philippi, but it says that she's from Thyatira. She's got places in both these different cities. It's as if I were to tell you, hey, you know, uh, there's this person who's in the fashion industry. They got a home in New York City, and they also got one in Paris, right? This person probably is well off. This person, she's doing pretty good for herself. She's not struggling, let's say that. So she's seemingly got everything together, right? Again, she's wealthy. She's got money. She's got morals. She's respectable. Um, she's smart, intelligent, obviously, to get to this point in her life, right? We looked at... Uh, we see that she's in some ways rejected a Roman paganism. She knows there's one God. She knows that the Jewish people, um, they, they seemingly have it right, that their God is the one true God. She understands that. She would probably be labeled a conservative today. Somebody that um, would even attend a Bible study in this example, right? A conservative that maybe goes to church every once in a while, attends these events and partakes, indulges, and does the right thing, looks the right part. However, what's also interesting is that as we continue to read, it says that when Paul shows up and begins to teach them, it says her, finally, her eyes are finally open. Specifically in verse 14, it says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So finally, it says that she believed and the gospel changed her. See, this woman was extremely wealthy. She was a businesswoman, of course, and uh, she was awfully successful. She was, again, upright, morally good, religious, kind of did the right things. But up until that point, she was not a follower of Jesus. Despite being at church, despite being part of this little Bible study, this prayer group, she was involved, she was doing the right things, but says the Lord finally opened up her heart. Finally, she understood the gospel. Leading up to that point, she did not know him, even though she indulged and partook in everything that was on the surface the right thing to do. Up until that point in her life, she had not laid down her yes for Christ and committed her life to Jesus and allowed her life to be shaped by him. And yet in that place, that's where Jesus meets her. And maybe if you look at your own testimony, maybe before you accepted Jesus and you surrendered your life to Jesus, this was what you looked like. You know, you came here, you participated and you did the right things, you said the right things, try to paint this image on the outside that you had it all together, but you never really knew Jesus. You never really gave your life to him. And maybe... That's where God met you. Maybe he challenged you. And you came to the conclusion or you were confronted with the fact that you really didn't know him. Even though according to the world standard, you were a Christian. You might have even called yourself one. But in reality, you didn't have a relationship with him. You know, some people you know, might show up, you know, do the right things. They come to church on Easter, Christmas. You know, come whenever they need to or partake and be involved 
They follow and do what their parents tell them to do sometimes. You live this morally good life and you think that's enough, but the truth is that's not enough. And praise God, he maybe took you out of a place like that, but the reality is there might be some of you like that this morning here today. You just come because your parents tell you to come, because it's an obligation for you to be here, because you don't have a choice. Or maybe you do have a choice and you just kind of want to come just to kind of play the part. But you don't really know Jesus. You don't truly have a relationship with him. You've never surrendered your life to God. You're just playing this game of Christianity. Sometimes you might not realize it, sometimes you do. But I want to tell you that just like he met Lydia in that place, he can meet you today as well. Once she finally had a relationship with God, once he finally opened up her eyes to the gospel, it changed her life. It changed things for her. That's what the gospel does. Gospel is a genuine repentance of sin and acceptance of Jesus. And that's what's happening in her heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. He's talking about David here. Because I rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Being moral, being a good person is not enough. You won't bear any fruit that way. And even if this is not your testimony, maybe you don't relate to this. We all know people like this, right? And so we can picture what this looks like. Now take this picture of this individual like Lydia and think of the complete opposite. That's the next person we're gonna be looking at. Maybe you're Lydia, maybe you're like this person. Continue on with me here in verse 16. This is what we read about um, Paul and Silas now as they encounter a very interesting <laughs> a woman. As we, are going, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. She was demon-possessed, essentially, what's happening. And brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So they kind of abused her for this. They, they used her to, to bring in this money, to bring in these riches for themselves. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned around and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers. Now, this is a really funny uh, text in some ways because this slave girl reminds me of the stereotypical hype man guy in movies that just follows around the cool jock and just like backs him up with whatever he has to say right he just kind of interjects randomly like the cool guy is just walking around with like a like a like a football jacket you know what I mean he's all buff he's a handsome guy and he's talking and he's like yeah we got a party Friday night or yeah don't mess with us and then th this guy from the back is like yeah you heard him yeah, you heard him. And he just puffs out his chest. He's usually like painted as a smaller guy. He doesn't got the physical stature of the cool guy, but he just backs him up and he just leeches himself onto this guy, interjects, and he's like, yeah, don't mess with us. 
and you watch this movie, and you, you've seen this character. You know what I'm talking about. And he's, like, trying to help in a way. Like, he, he's, he's, like, supporting what he's saying, but really he's not helping at all. Um, and so the cool guy is, like, most of the time just looks back in disappointment, like, just shaking his head. Um, and then it gets to the point sometimes where the, the cool guy just goes, hey, dude, just relax. Like, stop. Like, like stop talking. He gets annoyed. This is similar to what I see here, and I kind of envision uh, that when this is all happening here. But what's, but what's different in this situation was that unlike the hype man, right, this, this lady, this girl, is not trying to help like the hype man is. The hype man is trying to help, but he's not helping at all. Um, she's not doing it because she's insecure of herself or she wants to impress other people that's not why she's doing it maybe like the hype man she's doing it strictly because she's mocking the gospel because she's trying to prevent the gospel from spreading she literally wants to be a distraction to prevent things from progressing and eventually paul's like enough he gets annoyed and he he just turns around and he says leave her he couldn't take it anymore and that's, that happens, right? That's real. Like, sometimes you just get annoyed. Or this, that happens to Paul. He's not invincible. He's not prone to feeling this way. He does get annoyed, and he casts this demon out of her, and the demon leaves. Now, what's interesting here is that the Bible doesn't say explicitly, it doesn't say very clearly that this girl came to know Jesus, that she was saved. But... As you kind of look at what happened after it, as you look at the Bible itself in general and what uh, God teaches, what Jesus teaches about um, kind of this demon activity or, you know, being possessed by one in this sense. If you look at his ministry and even studying this, looking at uh, Matt Chandler again, he, he wrote a book on, on this, or not this but in particular, but touches on this in this book, To Live as Christ. He suggests that she does become a Christian. Right, again, I don't want to assume things that aren't true, but he bases this off of what we read here in this piece of text um, and also what Jesus teaches in the book of Matthew. So he believes that this lady would go on to be part of the church in Philippi. And although the Bible doesn't clearly state it here, again, this idea is rooted in Scripture. And so I just want to read it to you, Matthew 12, 43, 45. It says this, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless spaces seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And it, when it comes and it finds the house empty, swept, and put together, and put in order, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So will it be with the evil generation. So, Essentially what's being said here is that if an evil spirit is cast out and nothing else moves in, that spirit will come back. But this time it will not just come back itself, but bring its buddies along, bring its friends. And it's going to be even worse than before. Things will be even more dire for this person than it was in the past. And so what leads him to believe this and why I'm inclined to think perhaps something similar was the reaction and the response of the owners. When they saw what happened to her, it says that they knew that they could no longer make any money through this gimmick they set up. They were hopeless now. What they wanted to do before, they couldn't do anything. And the reason I think for that is because something did move in, the Holy Spirit. 
Because if that hadn't happened, perhaps they could have continued on and done this, but they couldn't. And that's significant in some sense. You know, most of you can't maybe relate to that first story, right? Perhaps some of us, you know, might look at that story and, and say, well, I, I, I don't have everything together. I don't have everything in order. I'm not like Lydia. But we look at her in this story here, this lady, and in some ways, if we look at the broader implications, we might be able to relate with her more so than Lydia. The reason being is because this person, this girl, at the root of what's happening here is that she has given herself over to sin. And sin has taken over her life. It has consumed her. When we looked at Lydia, everything was put together. She seemed like she had everything figured out. This girl has nothing figured out. She is absolutely uh, depraved. She is... um, abused and and lost and and has nothing. She has given herself over to sin while Lydia is respectable. She's intelligent. People people look up to her and she's an example to follow. These are two opposite people. And yet Jesus meets Lydia in that space and he meets this girl in this place as well. Jesus has an encounter with this lady but also this girl potentially came to know Christ. And even if, right, even if, for example, this wasn't the case in this situation, maybe this slave girl who was possessed didn't come to know Christ. I can't tell you that for sure did happen. But what I can guarantee you and tell you with 100% confidence is that if it did, I would not be surprised. And that God can meet people in those dark places all the time. Whatever it is that has consumed your life, whatever sin has overtaken your life, whether it's addiction, um, you name it. I don't want to go into it, but you know because you personally have experienced it and you know the things that are going on in your life. Maybe you were addicted to something. Maybe you were involved in lust and in, in all these different things and the Lord saved you from that but maybe you're still in that dark place right now God is he, he wants to know you he wants to have a relationship with you you're not too far gone you're not in a dark place where he won't step into he will meet you there and he desires to have a relationship with you some of us that's our testimony that's our story I, for so long, I thought I was playing the role of Lydia. I tried to, but the reality is I was more like this girl who was totally lost and consumed by sin. And maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe some of you are going through that right now. I want to tell you that God can meet you in that place. Just like you met with Lydia and also perhaps this girl, but even if not her, all the other people that he has in these dark places. And lastly, one last person here I just want to touch on is the jailer. We look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, And he brought them to the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. The advocates' customs are not lawful as the Romans to accept our practices. The crowd joined in on them and the magistrates tore their garments off and gave orders to beat them with rods. And they inflicted many blows upon them and they threw them into prison, ordering jailer to come keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into their inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. 
These men were severely beaten. And after the ruler ordered them to be sentenced into jail, this jailer didn't just throw them into jail. It says that he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Meaning he put them in the innermost middle cell. And this is probably a slope. And so all the, excuse my language, human feces probably kind of dribbled down and rolled down into where these men were stationed. So not only were they surrounded by this awful smell, awful things around them. Now they were also in stocks and they were had, they were already beaten, totally, uh, totally uncomfortable beforehand, but now even more so because they were put into stocks. And stocks were made so that they would push your limbs apart in uncomfortable positions. And they were left in, there in that position. And they were, they were tortured, abused, and mocked, and made to look like fools, humiliated, suffering, of course, these incredible discomforts and cramping pains. This jailer was absolutely busted up. He did this intentionally. Didn't have to, but he did. And then all of a sudden, an earthquake comes. An earthquake comes and shakes things up, and things uh, break open. The, the two men, Paul and Silas, are broken free, and the jailer panics because he thought he failed, and he almost commits suicide. He almost takes his life, and yet Paul and, and Silas, they call out to him, and they tell him to stop because they're still there in prison. They thought he had, they, they, they had fleed, and yet they did and they come to him, and he asks them, how and what must I do to be saved? And they share the gospel with him, and they change this man's life, and he brings them home to meet his family, and they come to know Jesus as well, and they, they are baptized at once. This jailer must have seen incredibly awful things. A jailer was usually given his post, according to history, because he was a reputable officer, a soldier. And so as a retirement plan, you kind of got a jail to run for yourself. So previously, he would have been a soldier and he would have seen the awful things that we know the Romans did, right? The crucifixion, the execution, and plastering people on walls, right? People would have seen that. People knew we are not gonna mess with the Romans because these people mean business. They are brutal people. They strong-handed their way to power. And this guy was on the front line of that. He saw all of that firsthand. He knew what these people were like. He experienced it, and from this he gained bitterness. He grew angry. He had hatred in his heart. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're bitter and you're angry. Maybe you're, maybe you're mad at God because you've experienced hurt or pain. You've lost something in your life, lost a person. You've been frustrated with God, and you can't have a relationship with him because that pain has prevented you from doing so. This man who was angry, who was bitter. He then turns to Jesus. After witnessing all of that, after, um, after experiencing all this, being a violent man, being a hateful man, being a bitter man, although he was lost, God steps in and saves this man as well. Some of us are in that place. Some of us were in that place. We couldn't forgive God and what he did. We heard that God loved us, but he took away the people we loved. How could that be possible? Maybe you're wrestling through that right now. But I want to tell you, wherever you are in your life, whatever situation it is that you're in, I want to tell you that God is capable of saving you, and the gospel can change you and I. Whatever your testimony is, whatever it was, God is able to save us. This is true about us. All of us at one point that came to know Jesus, we were once sheep who had gone astray, and yet the good shepherd came after us. 
whether you didn't know him and you thought you did and you pretended you did or you mocked God or you were angry at God, whatever it is, God loves you and desires to have a relationship with you and he wants to do so and you can. Maybe you already do have a relationship and praise God that you do, but you know people that don't. And you know they struggle with these things. So I encourage you to go to them and challenge them and care for them and love them and show them the gospel and preach the gospel to them. And some of you that are here and don't have a relationship with God, do not delay. What are you waiting for? Put all those things aside and trust in Jesus. Let me pray for you this morning. Um, If you have a relationship with the Lord, I I pray that you be bold about uh, your faith and sharing it with others. But if you don't, I I do want to encourage you to come find me after this. I would love to pray with you. Sit down and talk through the gospel with you. Lord, I I thank you again for this time that we have together to be able to open up God's word, to be challenged by scripture, look at these testimonies of these different people, to see how they were all different in so many different ways, but each and every one of them was lost. And at some point you came and you found them. You saved them. Lord, at some point we were all lost in this room um, and you found us. Some of us still don't have a relationship with you, and I pray for those that don't. I pray that they would. I pray that they would come to know the loving Father that we have, the, uh, the amazing gift that was his son, Jesus Christ, Lord, and I pray that they would accept it, repent, and turn from the sin. And for those that do have a relationship, Lord, help us to be bold in our faith, to love others the way that you love us. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, good morning and citizen and we'll slash elevate. Hope you guys have a great day.